You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Couple, couple texts from the Bible, and then we will tell you what's going on today. Exodus 33. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And then a quick text from Matthew's Gospel. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Beware when people compliment you before they ask you a question. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. Notice Jesus didn't have a coin on them, and the hypocrites did. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said Caesar's. Then Jesus said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The word of the Lord. Chris House is not here. Nice transition. Chris called me on Friday and said, I tore a muscle in my tricep at the gym. I said, who's gym? What's a gym? Why would you go to one? See, you got hurt. I didn't go to one, and I'm perfectly fine. Just saying. He also, on top of that, he's going to punch me in my face for these jokes. On top of that, he got a uh, virus and called yesterday and said, I 
I'm 50-50, and I want to be there when I could be my full self. And so please tell the people that I love them that I will be there before this year is over, but he's not going to be able to make it today. So thank you to everyone who prayed for Chris House this past week. I'm just kidding. Oh. A long time ago in 2018, people at Stony Kill Farm asked me to pray for their weather vane, their, that big tent and they asked me to come there and pray for it, lay hands on it. They asked all the clergy to lay hands on different things at the farm, and I laid hands on the weather vane, and like two weeks later, the macro burst came and destroyed it. (laughs) And they never asked me to come back and pray ever again. So maybe I'm the one who prayed for Chris House. Oopsie daisies. I just wanted to pull like a Pentecostal answer and be like, no, God did what he wanted to do with that thing. Maybe you're the ones that have the sin, Stony Kill. So, I found out that I'm speaking today. I went right to the texts that I just read and got nothing at all. I spent my week deciding, since I'm not preaching, I'm going to spend my week with as many different people from the church as I can in a week. Every time my phone rings, I'm going to answer it. I'm going to have a full-on conversation. I'm not going to consider anything. It's my week to be with people. And I listened and asked questions like we should whenever we're around people. And I began to hear all last week a theme of, this is a tough time, Pastor. We're going through it. Even good days, I'm tired at the end of them. Good days, somebody said to me, somebody said this to me. They said, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. It's just, amen. It's just harder, it's just harder to get the smile on my face that I used to have doing it. He said, I appreciate that honesty. So all week long, I've been having similar conversations to, I'm more tired than I've ever been. It's more stressful than it's been. Doing a normal thing just feels like it's taking more mental labor, more emotional labor. Can anybody agree with some of these reports that we're hearing? It made me think back to this summertime when those campfires from Canada, the smoke was kind of sweeping down on us. And it didn't shut anything down, but life seemed to be happening under this dark fog. Everything was happening normal that was supposed to happen. It wasn't like COVID where we all had to stay inside. Life was happening but it was happening under this weird apocalyptic orange. Not the fun fall kind of orange. The disgusting pollution kind of orange. You would walk from here to there, and you would feel it in your lungs. It's harder to go from point A to point B. Even though I'm in shape to do it, for some reason it's more fatiguing now because of this pollution in the atmosphere. These particles. And I feel like spiritually, while that has lifted in the natural, I feel like spiritually there's still some pollution where just doing a normal Christian thing like turning a page in our Bible or praying or reading or trying to get together, trying to live our Christian life in spirit and in truth, trying to be salt and light just feels so much more expensive. And not just monetarily, it feels more expensive emotionally than it ever has. There's a weight to it. There's been seasons where having a good day made you excited for the next one, but even now, a good day is exhausting. 
So I said, Lord, what's the title of the message? And God gave me no title. So I've titled this message, No Title. You know why? Because sometimes an answer limits what God is trying to do in your life. I want somebody to hear this. Sometimes God telling you what he's doing will limit your expectation of what he's actually doing. Sometimes there's no title on your pain, on the answer to your pain, because God is working in it, not against it. Sometimes what's going on in your house and the relationships in your house, we want to title it, we want to label it, we want to say, Lord, I know exactly what's going on, which is to say, I know exactly how to get out of it. And sometimes God will say, the title of your pain, the title of this relational issue, the title of this sickness, the title of this season is there is no title. Because once I tell you what I'm doing, it will limit your expectation of what I'm doing. I'm just asking you to come along with me. Take the pain, take the frustration, take the fatigue, take the tiredness, and just bring it with me. We're going somewhere. Well, where are we going? If I told you, it would limit your expectation of where we're going. You would start to develop categories of what I'm doing that will forever miss what I'm actually doing. Salem, sometimes we need to learn how to walk in the dark with God. Because when he opened his mouth, when the light of the world said, let there be light, before the light of the world said, let there be light, there was darkness. And somehow the light of the world was existing in darkness, which means we can be in darkness and still have his word be a lamp unto our feet and a light upon our path, even when we can't see. Sometimes clarity hurts us. Sometimes being found actually makes us more lost. We sit there and say, I'm so lost, Pastor. I'm so lost. But the reality is we, we are far too located in our own mind. We know too much of what we think is going on. I know exactly why I'm dealing with this. I know exactly why that person's got an attitude. I know exactly what I need from God. I know exactly what to pray for. And then we say, I feel lost. And sometimes our certainty is what is making us lost in the woods. No title. I do have ADD, and so when I wrote no title, I realized that's actually an impossible title because once you title it no title, then you've given it a title. And I had a mental breakdown. <laughs> had a bit of a mental breakdown this morning. I was like, God, is that it? Do I tell them that it's no title? Because then it is a title. What are you doing right now? I can't breathe. I'm panicking. I'm going to take five deep breaths. It reminded me when my friend Andy from third grade stole my lunchbox and said, ask for it back, and I asked for it back, and he said, today's opposite day. <laughs> and now that I'm grown and I have a brain in my head, I'd like to tell Andy, wherever you are, this is my ADD rant, so go with me. There is no such thing as opposite day, because once you say it's opposite day, then it can no longer be opposite day. It's a regular day. So either it's a regular day or it's opposite day, which means it's opposite of opposite day, which means it's a regular day. So Andy, give me my lunchbox back, man. There's no such thing. Everybody's like, he's either really funny or he's losing it fast and we're watching it. We're watching it happen in real time. I promise you, Salem, if I ever lose it, I will make it so dramatic. Get your phones out if I start. I will, let you, I will call a meeting to let you know I'm about to lose it so it can be, it can be public. These texts reveal 
that there is a counterfeit way to make our way through trials. We know that one way to mess up when we're in trial is to just let the trial overtake us, to give up, and to just say it's over. I can't do anything else. I'm done. You ever meet people at work who are like, I'm done, or they say like, you know what? I can't. It's just like a phrase that you say when you're at the end of it all. We know that that's not the right way to do it. But there is a counterfeit that seems like the right way. And that is to ask God, what must I do to get out of this? I got your attention? There's a sense in which our inner need to control shows up through positive Christian language that says, I want to know exactly what to do. You tell me exactly what to do, and I will do it, which we won't, and I will get out of this situation, which we probably won't. The counterfeit, you ready? And if you're writing down or typing down or texting down, the counterfeit is to turn our faith from a seed to a coin. We want to turn our faith from a seed to a coin. We want to turn our faith into coins that we call good doctrine, coins that we call moral, coins that we call wisdom, coins that we call good decisions, coins that we call obedience, and we want to turn them into coins so that we can turn those things into God in exchange for something that we want. We want to commodify the gifts of our faith into a transaction-oriented economy that says, if I pay God morality, if I pay God Bible reading, if I pay God prayer, if I pay God the spiritual disciplines, then he in turn will give me the product of getting me out of all of my trials into this life of bliss that somehow we think should be better than the life Jesus himself lived while he was on this earth. Jesus says our faith is like a lot of things. Your faith is like leaven. Your faith is like a wedding. Your faith is like a banquet. Your faith is like a field. Your faith is like a mustard. He never says that our faith is like money. He knows better. Because we would make our faith transactionary. Like Judas Give me money, and I will give you Jesus. We want to transact. I'm going through it. Tell me what to do. I'll give that action back to you, and then I won't be going through it anymore. He's not a cashier. He's not a bank teller. He's king of kings and lord of lords and has reasons for doing and allowing things that he will never tell us but he will ask us to go with him on the journey. In John chapter 8, 19 and 20, the Pharisees say to Jesus, who is your father? And Jesus said, if you knew me, you would know my father, right? If you knew me, you would know my father because the Trinity is what? Father 
and Holy Spirit. So if you knew me, you would know the Father. And if you knew the Father, you would know me. But look what it says next in John's Gospel. Jesus said these things where? In the treasury. That little detail needs to stop us in our tracks. He said, you're missing who I am. And he said it in the place where all the coins are stored. Where the money is kept. And he's saying to all of us, if you think that the faith, the Christian faith, is a faith where you line up all the right decisions, do all of the right things, and now I owe you blessing and breakthrough, you will not know me, and you will not know my Father. Isn't this so encouraging? (laughs) He said it in the treasury... Not just because money will trip us up faster than anything else will. But because we make the Christian life monetary by thinking we can exchange actions for blessings. Or, better said, actions for information. When I first took over the church, somebody said to me, I demand to know what's going on with that property in Fishgill. I said, well, I'm not ready to talk about it yet. We still have to have a board meeting. I said, well, I tithe, so I deserve to know. And I said, actually, you just revealed that you don't tithe, you invest. Because you think your tithe entitles you to information that our Constitution says I'm not allowed to give until I have a board meeting. Now, that little anecdote story there, We do that to God all the time. I got up this morning. I read. I prayed. I did what you said. And why am I going through this? Tell me what. At least if I knew why. At least if I knew what. Then I'd be able to go through it. And God tells you some things. But there's other things he doesn't tell you. Know this. You know less about what's going on in your life than you think you do. The people of Israel in Jeremiah 29, and I'm sure it's possible that even somebody might even have this verse in ink on your body, and I'm not knocking it. I just want to give you some context, but every once in a while when I'm about to kind of tear up a verse, I just need to make sure it's possible one of you may have permanently put this verse on your body. I'm not saying it's a bad one. I'm just saying let me give you some context. Is that fair? How many know the verse, behold... The plans, plans for, and not for, can I just talk about that verse for a second? And I'm going to completely bite off of the late, great Tim Keller, who pastored Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan for a long time, and this year died of pancreatic cancer tragically. But he does a lot of really good teaching on this verse. Listen to what comes before God says, Behold, I know the plans I have for you. Israel is in exile. They have been robbed from their home. They're saying, Lord, when will you send us back home? Is that fair? 
to simplify it, this isn't our home. When will you send us back home? And it says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what I want you to do. And they're like, okay. Tell us. We'll write it down. And we'll do everything. He's going to tell us what to do. He's going to get us out of exile. Here's what I want you to do. Build houses. Live in them. Plant gardens. Eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. He's talking about generations now. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. What? We must, you know what, let's fast and ask him again. That doesn't sound like God. That sounds like Satan. That doesn't sound like... For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name, saying, you're going to get out of here fast. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place. Now the tattoo. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. Jeremiah was selling no books with that one. I promise you, You don't know as much as you think you know about what is going on in your life and what is going on in God's life in your life. Moses has this moment. We just talked about it last week. Moses goes up on a mountain and chisels into a rock. I hated writing my last name, Dandriano, too long. He chisels into a rock all these words of the Lord. Imagine that. Hand cramp. He comes down the mountain, and in his absence, the people have fashioned a golden calf. And he looks at what he wrote down, and the first one is, you shall not have like any graven images. And he's like... Uh Uh-oh. I'm gone for a little while. And they fall apart the minute I leave. Now he's standing before God and he's saying, who's going to go with me? Because it can't be that I have to be there 24-7, otherwise they fall into idolatry. What did they say? Aaron, up, quickly, make us an idol that we might know who brought us out of Egypt, for we do not know what's become of Moses. Listen to me, Salem. It is far worse for us to have idols than it was for them because they didn't know any better. 
They were five minutes out of Egypt, and in Egypt, all they saw were graven images of all the gods of creation, and that is all they knew. For 430 years, all they knew, the only theology they had was that God was whatever thing represented land or the weather or something like that. And so all they knew, we should have compassion on them for this. All they knew when they didn't have Moses was, if we don't get another leader quickly, we will get another Pharaoh fast. And Moses is like, God, it's not that they're rebellious. It's that they don't know how to not have a physical person leading them. Who are you going to send with me? What if I have to go to the bathroom? I'm going to come back, and there's going to be 12 golden calves all over the place. He's this far away from the promised land, and the people, a smog has settled over them. And Moses is saying, all they know about you is that you send frogs and locusts and death and you blow up mountains, and all they know about Pharaoh is that he's abusive. And he goes before God and says, what am I supposed to do? And here's what he says. Show me your ways. And God doesn't. They keep talking. And Moses finally says, you know what? If I found favor in your sight, show me them. Show me your ways. And God says, my presence will go with you. Moses wants coins, principles, ways to lead, seven ways to lead people, five ways to lead a nonprofit organization, ten ways to live your best life now. Garbage, 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 garbage. Show me your ways. I'll give you my presence. That's not what I asked. So then Moses says, watch this, something changes in him. And he says, if your presence doesn't go with me, then I don't want to go to the promised land. Now we're talking. Now Moses is cooking. Moses just said, I'd rather not have anything you've ever promised me if it means not having you. Which means it's possible to attain the promises of God and lose his presence. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not, I am nothing. Are you telling me that I could operate in the gifts of the Spirit and not be filled with the Spirit of Christ? If I give my body to be burned and give up all that I have, but have not, are you saying that I could do all the righteous things, function in all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and actually lack His presence? 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, tattoo that. If I do all the Christian things, but have not, many will say to me, Lord, 
did we not do X, Y, and Z in your name? And I will say to them, I never... Is it possible to get the blessings of God, the gifts of God, even the morality of God, and realize we never actually had Him? My Bible seems to think so. Jesus, should we pay taxes? Let me see those coins. See these coins, fellas? They have Caesar's image on them. Give all of them to Caesar. What is he saying? He's saying Caesar will take your economy, he will take your production, he will take your money, and he doesn't care if he never gets to meet you. But my father is not like Caesar. Whose image is on these coins? Caesar's. Give them to Caesar. Whose image is on your life? God's. Then give to God. What is God's? My father doesn't want your coins. He doesn't want your commodified faith. He doesn't want your morality. He doesn't want your obedience. He doesn't want your certainty before he wants you. His, in his presence. He wants you before he wants anything else. Do those other things matter? God showed Moses part of his life. There was a part that Moses was allowed to see, a part that he could name, a part that he could measure, a part that he could say, see, and he will teach Israel for the rest of his life, off of the part that he was allowed to see. So is it that there's nothing measurable? Of course. There are ways to do things decently and in order. There are spiritual gifts. There are lifestyles that are better than others. Yes, there are. There are ways to date that are better than others. Yes, there are. There are ways to be married and talk to each other. There are ways that the bedroom works that are better than others before God. Yes, there are, but none of those things are more important than his presence in your life and your presence in his. There comes a point. There comes a point when we're suffering, when we're going through it as a community, as a society, when there are unanswerable questions out there. Kids writing their names on their arms over in the Middle East in case something happens to them so their parents can identify them. When you sit in the gall of that, and if you don't get mad at God, I'm telling you right now, as your pastor and as somebody who one day would like to be a clinician, there's something wrong with you. Right, Ron? Thank you. If you don't get mad at him, if you're like, well, you know, he has a reason, stop. If it doesn't make you want to vomit. And then you live under this weird cloud every time my son runs up to me. Daddy, daddy. I hold him and I'm so grateful, like unbelievably grateful. And then, and then as a dad, I know that there's a dad out there who's not going to hear that. Right? If it doesn't wreck you a little bit, if you care more about what side you're on than just aching for that, there's something wrong with you. I'm saying that to say... There are times 
when the suffering hits your home hard enough, when it hits your life hard enough, when it hits your emotions hard enough, when it hits your wallet hard enough, when it hits your physical body hard enough, whatever it is, there are times when suffering hits you hard enough that your response should not be, God, what do I do? It should be, I just need you. I don't want to know what to do next. I want to know that you're still here. I want to know that I'm with you. I want to know that you see me. I want to know that you're here. There has to be a point where we say, we say, Jesus is my rock, and then maybe somebody has to say, Jesus is my rock bottom. I hit rock bottom, and guess what? Rock bottom was Jesus. Well, how did you fall? What decisions did you make? Right now, that doesn't matter. I'll get there, but right now, I'm just happy I landed on my Savior and didn't shatter all over the place. There's part that Moses didn't get to see. This is why the title is no title. Because as Christians, we do, we hear, we read this story of God hiding Moses, and we read it like elitists and say, well, we get to see what Moses couldn't see. No, we don't. Well, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Can somebody please draw me an exact picture of what he looks like or show me on your phone when you took a snapshot of him, like a selfie with Jesus? Come on, let me see it. We haven't seen him. We see him in the bread. And you know how much I love the Eucharist, but I'm hoping when we see him in real life, he's not that with arms and legs. <laughs> bishop Q, I apologize. <laughs> My bishop's like, good God, we've done nothing. We've done nothing. We haven't seen him face to face yet. So there's some, there's some options. There's some options. I am landing the plane, I promise. There are some options. Why hide Moses? Some people will say it's because of our sinful nature. Can I, can I just take this one, crumble it up, and kind of throw it in the garbage for a second? Say it's because of our sinful nature. We're so sinful that if we saw God, he'd kill us. Who in their actual right mind would want to say they're a child of that kind of father? Raise your hand if you're a parent. Imagine one of your kids was like, I'm so bad that if my mom and dad looked right at me, John, I see that hand, you can put it down. <laughs> if Theo was like, I can't look at my dad because he said I'm so bad that if I looked directly at him, I would die. That's horrifying. He's the face of life. He's the face. What does he say? I will be merciful. On whom I will be merciful. Why does he say it that way? We read it and say, oh, that means he's not going to be merciful on some people. No, it's literally the opposite. He's saying to Moses, I'm going to show you myself. But trust me, when you see who I am, you're going to be upset that I am merciful on the people I'm being merciful about. 
Has anybody been faced, I'm going to preach for a second, has anybody been faced with a situation where like, why does God let all this stuff happen? And then somebody says, well, his ways aren't. It is the worst verse to ever quote in that regard of God letting terrible things happen. Why? Because when you go back to Isaiah and you read when God says that, he says, I am a forgiving God. I will forgive all of those to a thousand generations, for my ways are not your ways. He's saying, you're the violent ones. You're the destructful ones. You're the judgmental ones. My ways are not those ways. That's what he's saying. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Why is he saying it that way? Because Moses will be like, why are you having compassion on them? Because I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Well, who will that be? You, 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 count everybody. Well, God. Remember, remember, is it Kit Kats? Two for me, none for you? We want grace for me, law for you. I want him. I'm one of the 144,000. I'm, for Calvinists, I'm the one who's predestined for heaven. I've never met a Calvinist who's like, here's the funny thing, I'm the one who's predestined for hell. Never met a Jehovah's Witness who's not one of the 144,000. There seems to be 5.8 billion of them who think they're all the 144,000. Let's be honest, we want full universal salvation for ourselves and none for my coworker in the cubicle next to me because she talked loud on her phone. What am I even talking about right now? Where are we at? Landing the plane. Oh, yeah, landing the plane. That's right. Closing. He hides Moses, not because Moses is sinful. Jesus said, if the Son of Man is lifted up on the cross, it's the same as when the serpent is. Anybody who looks at him won't be dead, they'll be healed. All right, so why? Maybe it's because God is not measurable. And so the minute we look at him and say, I can measure him, it's no longer God. Therefore, it's no longer the face of life that we're looking at anymore. And maybe that's why it would kill us. Because if you could measure it and explain it, it's not God anymore. It's a graven image. See, that one slipped past you, but that's actually really important. If you can explain everything about God, then you missed him somewhere along the way. If you can explain why, why, if you can look at somebody else and say, I know why something's going, I know every reason why something's going wrong in your life. It is no longer God giving you that information. It's a little wily demon making you think it's the voice of God giving you that information. If you can measure it, it's not him. Well, I know what initial evidence of baptism in the Holy Spirit is, and I know. No, you don't. What did Jesus say? The Spirit is like wind. We don't know where it starts. We don't know where it's going. It's just pure power. That's the Holy Spirit. If you can measure him, it's not the Holy Spirit. It's a figment and a product of your imagination, my imagination. Maybe 
Moses couldn't see him because if he looked at the front part of God, he would have seen Jesus carrying a cross because that's what John's gospel tells us his glory is. And Moses would have died not because he's immoral, but because he is crucified with Christ. So maybe when Jesus passed by Moses, Moses got to see the resurrection, but didn't get to initially see how we get there. Maybe. Maybe you could think of five yourself. That's why this sermon can't have a title. But I'll tell you this. Here's what I do know. He will hide you and not tell you everything. But rest assured, what he's hiding you in is Jesus. When you don't know everything, you do know that you're wrapped in Christ. When you don't have all the answers, you are placed in the safety of your refuge, who is your Lord and Savior. Look what it says in Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead by what? By the glory. Jesus was raised from the dead by what? Lord, show me your glory. And he shows us some, but he doesn't show us everything. So if somebody said, well, what is his glory? How do you describe it? I don't know. I know this. His glory is whatever made Jesus' dead body alive again. His glory is what gets you back up after you fall. His glory is why you can be struck down but not destroyed. It's why you can be persecuted but not abandoned. It's why you could fall seven times and get up eight. That's his glory. His glory is the reason why you could get up again tomorrow after everything that's going to happen today. His glory is why every parent in the Middle East, Palestine or Israeli, could stand up and say, I still have hope somehow. That's his glory. That is his glory. Show me your ways. That's not always the answer. Show me your glory. I'll show you enough to know that my glory is the power working in you that will get you to stand up after life has knocked you down 57 times. My glory is why you can have hope in a world that is this fractured. My glory is why you can live confident with no answers. Let's stand to our feet this morning. When you come to the Lord's table this morning, I want you to think for your own self, where has your faith become coins? Where do you live trying to control every outcome? Steph, I'm going to preach to them about trying to control every outcome. It could get, it could get dangerous in here. Hold on. Where do you live trying to manipulate the world around you so that you don't get hurt? Where do you live trying to find sneaky little ways to tell people about Jesus so they don't get hurt? And it went from healthy to toxic. Where do you look more at what is going on in the world and develop opinions, thoughts, feelings, and emotions 
that trump the peace that passes all understanding that is given to people in exile, in suffering, in brokenness. What does Isaiah say? Don't call conspiracy what this people calls conspiracy. Spend 15 seconds on your phone and you will see Christians calling conspiracy what this people, not God, calls conspiracy. Glory is how you live like Jesus lived under a corrupt religious system and under a corrupt governmental system that does nothing but look after its own interest and enslaves everybody else. Glory is how Jesus disconnected from the power of the secular liturgy about Rome and connected himself to the Father. And people said to Jesus, they're going to conspire against you. They're going to steal our land. They're going to take over. They're going to murder you. And Jesus said, no one does that to me. I lay down my life. And I pick it back up again because of glory. Well, how do you define glory, Pastor Bill? Don't ever define glory because once you've defined it, it's not glory anymore. Glory is whatever picked Jesus up from the ashes of corruption and gave him life again. That's what glory is. Glory is what snatched power out of a corrupt government. Jesus didn't move to get off the grid. He said, this whole grid, I made it. It's mine. I'm staying right here, and I'm going to bring my glory to it. Finances, broken relationships. Jesus went through all these things. Betrayed by the ones he loves the most. In a borrowed tomb, in a borrowed upper room, on a borrowed donkey, he didn't have any way to say, look what I've accomplished. My Kia is nicer than anything Jesus ever owned. <laughs> Hey man, I know, whatever. How did he do it? Glory. I just need to know. You need to, sometimes we need to know steps. Sometimes we just need to say, show me your glory. And whatever you show me, I will honor. And whatever you hide from me, I will know that I'm hidden in Christ. Both are gifts. What he shows you is a gift. What he doesn't show you is a gift. Lord Jesus, it was on the night when you were betrayed that glory was already working in your life. In the midst of betrayal and darkness, evil, scheming, plotting, corruption, conspiracy, you look down at this bread. You looked at Judas and you said, you can't betray me. I've already given myself up to this. You said this is your body broken for us. You said this is your blood spilled for us. 
And you said as often as we come to this meal, we can have new and unending life in you. And so I pray that we would bring to this table all of the coins, all of the ways that we have commodified our faith, all of the ways that we are trying to move chess pieces around life's chessboard. I pray that we would come and we would put them down, drop them on the floor in front of the altar, and pick up the bread of life and say, right now, in this season in the world, in this time in life, in this part of 2023, I desperately need your presence more than anything else. More than any information, more than any understanding, even more than any wisdom, I need your presence. If your presence doesn't go with me, I don't want to go anywhere that we would call good if your presence isn't there. Lord, bring us back to your presence. Help us to live our life even if there's no title. Just let there be trust. Let there be love. Let there be communion and fellowship with you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you descend on this bread. Make it for your people the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. Descend on us also. Forgive us of our sins and allow us to leave here and to maybe even be reflections of the glory of God. We pray all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.